Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to, uh, to turn in your Bibles uh, to Hebrews chapter 3. We are going through the book of Hebrews uh, verse by verse. Tonight we're going to uh, start with the middle of the, um, uh, the third chapter and try to get through the middle of the fourth chapter. And uh, the reason for that is um, um, in, in one sense, I'm, I'm not saying the translators made a mistake, but in one sense it would have been uh, more advantageous for the, the chapter division, uh, for chapter 4 to begin with chapter 3, verse 12, all the way down through chapter 4, about verse 12. Because Paul is making an argument. I say Paul, we believe Paul is the, uh, is the author of the, the uh, letter written to the Hebrews. At the time that this letter is written, uh, which is somewhere early to mid-60s uh, A.D. It's been about uh, 30 years since um, uh, Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead. Uh, the Jews, or I'm sorry, the church, the primary uh, enemy of the church has been the Jews. And um, uh, really up until the Roman persecution and, and the, the Christians being used, thrown into the Colosseum and, and uh, used for Roman games and stuff like that, the, the Jews were the, the primary uh, enemy, the greatest enemy that the church had. We know from uh, the book of Acts that, uh, that Paul was given uh, letters by the, the high priest to imprison Christians and uh, to oversee their deaths in some cases. We know that uh, he was... Um, part of the group that um, uh, was involved in the stoning of Stephen. And, um, and as such, uh, the Jews, and when I say the Jews, I mean the religious Jews, had a real hard time because the, the early days of the church, when they are persecuting the Christians, they can't deny the miracles that are being done. And so the church is preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus and getting signs and wonders and miracles, but the Jews are, the religious Jews are trying to stop that, and so they try to throw some of them in prison. That just seems to increase the power of God operating through a, a wider variety of people rather than, uh, uh, than having the desired effect. But then we also know through, uh, through some of the things that uh, Paul's ministry tells us in the book of Acts records is that um, uh, the religious Jews, as they were not effective in stopping the spread of Christianity by imprisonment or, or putting people to death, then they tried to co-opt the church, co-opt the Christians, or co-opt Christianity, really. Because they, uh, uh, as they could not deny the power of God in operation, then they quit to some degree, and in some circles, in some cities. They stopped arguing against Jesus. They just tried to incorporate Jesus with the law. And as such, it was uh, that was as devastating, really more devastating to the church than, uh, than the persecution, the outright persecution where Christians were being uh, killed or imprisoned. Um, it's, um, you know who your enemy is if somebody's trying to put you in jail or, or kill you. If somebody's just trying to say, well, let's just add this and let's keep the law of Moses too and, and uh, come on you Gentiles, let's, let, let me teach you what the sacrifice is all about and things like that, then it becomes a, um, uh, a slow death. It's certainly death to Christianity. But the people involved didn't have the, the maturity, they didn't have the teaching, they didn't have the understanding to really know what to stand against. So when Paul writes the letter, he's writing knowing that it's going to go to Jerusalem to the religious Jews. Now, many of the religious Jews were Christians themselves. They weren't all, you know, just the tool of the devil. Uh, they were certainly operating in ignorance to a great degree. But by and large, the co-opting of Christianity that they were doing, and you see a lot of that happening in the... 
uh, in the church at Galatia, the churches in the region of Galatia. Paul took a very, very strong position against that. I mean, he wasn't kind in the letter that he wrote to the Galatians. He didn't say, now, I understand how you guys could be, uh, you know, uh, persuaded uh, or influenced to go the wrong way. He really laid it out. He told them they were, they were idiots. He told them that, that, you know, they, they shouldn't be listening to the wrong people. What are you listening to these people for when you saw the power of God working through me and the others that came? And so as such, he's, uh, Paul knows that he's got different audiences with this letter. He's got an audience with people, the, the religious Jews who are not saved. And so he wants to tell them about Jesus. He's got an audience with the religious Jews who are saved, but have, have combined Christianity with Judaism. So he wants to straighten them out and straighten out their, their doctrine and, and appeal to them. And so the, the book of Hebrews uh, is, uh, in, in that respect, is the most unique of any of the letters that Paul wrote. So what does he do? First thing he starts off with is he starts talking about uh, times and dispensations. Chapter 1, verse 1, he said, uh, God who at sundry times in diverse manners spoken times past unto the prophets, and our fathers has in these last days spoken to, unto us by his son. First thing he makes, the, the first point he makes is that times change and God speaks to us in different ways at different times. He talks about Jesus being superior to the angels. He talks about uh, man being superior to the angels in his, uh, in the new creation. Chapter three, he starts off in verse one. He says, wherefore consider. In other words, because Jesus is the one that created all things visible and invisible. He's the one that created the time periods that we've all lived through and the ones that are yet to come. He said, wherefore, consider Jesus as the high priest, the apostle and high priest of our profession. Now, the reason he talks about the apostle and the high priest is because the next verses, the first six, seven verses of chapter three, something like that, he's talking about Moses. Well, the children of Israel, Judaism is all based on Moses. It's based on the law that Moses delivered to them. Moses was the apostle. He was the sent one, the deliverer. Aaron, his brother, was the high priest. Apparently, God intended Moses to begin with to be both the apostle and the high priest, both the deliverer and the, the one to operate in the high priest's office. Moses, however, is arguing with God and uses as an excuse, I can't do this because I can't speak very well. And so God says, okay, I'll give you your brother. I, that didn't work out very well, but nevertheless, that's the way that it went. It doesn't seem to have been God's original intent. So when Moses, when uh, Paul speaks in chapter 3, verse 1, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, not only is he talking about Jesus being in an exalted position, he's saying just like Moses was the, the apostle, the sent one as deliverer in times past, now Jesus is the deliverer for this time. Just as Aaron was the high priest of times past, now Jesus is the high priest of the time that we live in. So having said that, then he starts talking about time periods. He starts talking about Moses' house. Then he talks about Jesus' house. Now the house that he refers to in verses, uh, uh, chapter three, what is it, verses, uh, two, three, and four. Well, really two through six. The house that he refers to is time periods. He's talking about dispensations. There was a time for the law. And so he says, Moses was faithful in his house. By the way, Jesus is the creator of all things, visible and, and invisible. Jesus would be the creator of the time period that Moses served in. So he says, Jesus was the creator of Moses' house. Moses was a faithful servant in his house. Then he says, but now Jesus has made another house. He's the creator of the house of this present day, what we know of as the church age or the new covenant. And he says, Jesus is the son. He's the builder of the house, and therefore he has greater stature than Moses, who was just a servant in the house that Jesus built. Consequently, 
in making that point, his first, uh, his first real, uh, well, I don't want to say dig, but it is kind of a dig at him. His first real legitimate change your attitude, change your doctrine point is that you put Moses on the pedestal and say you're following God through Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Consequently, he says in verse 7, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, now I want you to notice something. Paul is going to use a pattern that we should follow. And that pattern is, number one, he establishes that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. He's the one that writes this to Timothy. What is it? First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is given by God by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and is profitable for instruction, for reproof, for, in, for correction in righteousness. He says this to the Jews. They're not going to argue because they believe the Holy Ghost inspired the Old Testament. But he's going to use this argument to make his point about the new covenant and the new time period, the new dispensation. So he says, wherefore, as the Holy Ghost says. In other words, I know you would agree with me. The Holy Ghost is the one that inspired David to write. And then he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Here's what the Holy Ghost said. He said this through David. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation and in the temptation in the wilderness when your father tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. That's Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. Now, there's two points that Paul is making here. The first point he's making is this scripture that you know and agree with was inspired by the Holy Ghost. He just lays it out as a general information. No point, no disagreement here. We're all on the same page about that. But the, the reason he pulls this scripture out is because it's a reference to the fact that the Jews, the forefathers of the, of the, the, the religious Jews, the ones that are now holding fast to Judaism, their forefathers didn't accept Moses when he came along with the word of God. They didn't accept Moses when he was delivering the word given by the Holy Ghost. And, and as a result, he's making the, 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 uh, the point, don't make the same mistake as your forefathers. You act like the law of Moses has always been accepted and it's always been known to be the word of God. Your forefathers refused it and as a result died in the wilderness. See the point he's making? See, the religious Jews are taking the holier-than-thou position. They're taking a, we're better than the Gentiles. We're better than Christians. We're the ones that have the word of God. Well, how'd you get it? The ones that first heard it died in the wilderness because they refused to believe it. Are those the ones you're siding with? That's his point. Consequently, he moves to the next point. He says, verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now, I want you to notice, he does not say the problem with the generation that died in the wilderness was they made a golden calf. He does not say the problem with the children of, it, that, of Israel that died in the wilderness was that they committed fornication while they were making the golden calf. He doesn't talk about the things that they did, the, uh, the, the times that, that uh, they spoke against Moses. He doesn't talk about any of those things. He mentions one and only one sin, only one, uh, one and only one co- uh, reason for not entering into the promised land, and that was unbelief. Folks, I want you to understand. God looks on the heart. He may see you do a lot of things wrong. But he looks on the heart and the thing that ticks God off, if God can get ticked off, he did with them. So I guess I'm safe in using that that phrase. The thing that God hates is a refusal to believe. That's what disobedience is. Disobedience is a refusal to believe. 
we get caught up in sins of the flesh. We get caught up on, on things like, well, I, I thought the wrong thing and so now I feel so condemned. Or I said the wrong thing, said an unkind thing to my family or, and now I just feel so bad. Or we may have cut a corner and didn't pay our tithes when we knew we should have or didn't give something that God put on our heart to do. And we look at activity, we look at the action and we think, oh, those things make God mad at us. They don't. What counts with God is either faith or the opposite, unbelief. And that's all that counts with God. That's the only thing that counts with God. Disobedience is always a result of unbelief. But there's a difference between a conscious action of disobedience and you just slipping up and falling. The Bible says God knows your flesh is made of dust. You need to give yourself a break where the flesh is concerned and realize that it's the motive of the heart that we need to keep straight. Yeah, that always goes over real big. So he says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. That's what evil is in the sight of God, is unbelief. It's a refusal to accept the word. And that's the whole point he's making. He's saying, when you refuse to accept Jesus and what I'm teaching about Jesus and what you know I'm teaching about Jesus, what you've heard of me and what you've read in the other letters that I've written to the churches, when you refuse that, that's the same evil heart of unbelief that caused your forefathers to die in the wilderness after 40 years of disobedience. Don't do that. That's his point. Verse 13. But instead exhort one another daily while it is called today. Now notice in, uh, in verse 7 he mentions today. Now in verse 13 he mentions today as well. Keep that in mind. You're going to see that several other times because he's going to use that to wrap up a point. He said, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now realize he's speaking to two different groups of people. He's speaking to people that have not accepted Jesus that he knows is going to get this letter. But he can't just say, all right, this part's to the sinners and the other part is to the Jewish Christians. He's got to write it in such a way that applies to them, which means it applies to us too. And that is, this is the only thing that will cause a sinner to go to hell is rejecting Jesus, the evil heart of unbelief regarding the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's also the only thing that can keep a Christian out of the blessings of God, and that is to reject what they, what the Bible tells us Jesus proclaimed for us or, or procured for us. So it applies to Christians and non-Christians both. He says, don't let an evil heart of unbelief keep you out of the things of God. Folks, you've got just as many religious Christians today as we had religious Jews in Paul's day. And the, the, it's the same problem, an evil heart of unbelief. That's not an evil heart of unbelief where Jesus dying for our sins is concerned. That's accepted. That's pretty readily accepted, especially in America. But where does the evil heart of unbelief go after that? See, they accept Jesus, but what about healing? What about the other things Jesus died for? Everything the Bible says Jesus paid, his, paid the price for is part of salvation. But there are so many Christians that are kept out of the rest of the blessings of God that Jesus shed his blood for because of that evil heart of unbelief. They refuse to accept what the Word says, just like these people, the forefathers of the Jews, refused to accept what Moses said. So he says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief, but exhort one another while it is called today. While it is called today. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that and, and refer to it. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we are made partakers of Christ if. We are made partakers of Christ if. Now I want you to back up with me to verse 6. 
Notice it says, but Christ is a son over his own house. He's talking about the new dispensation, the the, the church. He's saying, but Christ is a, a son over his own house. Whose house are we? We're part of the church. We make up the church if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing the hope firm to the end. The word confidence there means outspokenness. It means boldness to speak out. Now, he's not saying that you lose your salvation if you fail to witness. He's not saying you lose your salvation if you don't say the right things about Jesus and and that kind of stuff. He's not talking about that. He's saying we become his house, in other words, the appearing of his house, if we are outspoken and bold in faith. But that's a different word that's used down here. Here, in verse uh, verse 15, it says, where did I... Where did I leave it? Verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence. This word means assurance. In other words, he's saying this. He's saying when you first accept Jesus, when you first hear about Jesus and you make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, you give your heart to Jesus, there's an assurance that you begin with. That's where the religious, much of the religious church in America is. They have the assurance that they're saved from sin. They have an assurance that heaven is their eternal home. They have an assurance but they don't appear to be the house that Jesus is building. Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How much of the church world would you say that you're familiar with in America? We'll just talk about what we know. The church in America, how much of the church in America would you say the the gates of hell are not prevailing against? Big percentage? Small percentage. Seems like a pretty small slice to me. For the most part, the gates of hell are prevailing pretty much against the church. Why? Because they haven't gone from that original assurance of salvation, meaning heaven is our home, to the holding fast, the boldness and outspokenness of our faith, which causes you to take hold of the blessings of God. That's going to be an important point when he starts talking in chapter 4 about the rest of God, entering into the rest. So now he speaks in verse 15. He said, while it is said today, here's that phrase again. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He's referring back to the same scriptures. These verses of scripture in Psalm 95 verses 7 through 11 are real important to Paul's point in getting the Jews to either be saved or to recognize what salvation is. I want you to understand that. He refers to that. The only reason we would possibly be able to cover a whole chapter tonight is because Paul speaks of it four different times. He keeps repeating himself regarding the same scriptures. He's trying to hammer home, remember Psalm 95, where David said, harden not your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as they did in the provocation. So here's another time that he says it, the third time that he says it. While he said, it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. We know that's already been defined as the 40 years in the wilderness where the children of Israel refused to believe. For some, when they had heard, now notice that, some, not all, but some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. In other words, he's saying not everybody provoked. Well, who didn't provoke him? Well, let's keep reading and see how he defines them. He's saying there were some that didn't provoke God over this, but a lot of them did. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? Was it not them with them that had sinned whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? Whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, folks? Everybody from age 20 and up, except Caleb and Moses, or Caleb and Joshua. 
Moses was accepted. Caleb and Joshua were the exceptions. And everybody 20 year, or, or under 20 years of age lived of the people that came out of Egypt. Everybody else died in the wilderness. So who are the ones that did provoke? The ones that provoked were age 20 and up except Caleb, Joshua, and Moses. Who are the ones that did not provoke God at the hearing of the word? Moses, Caleb, and Joshua, and all those 20 years and younger, or under 20 years of age. You see the distinction he's making? That's going to be important. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believe not? He's saying, if you harden your hearts just like they did and refuse to hear what the Holy Ghost is saying today, you will not enter into his rest any more than those that died in the wilderness. They might be talking to Christians. We know he's talking to the unsaved. We know the unsaved would be included in this, but he might be talking to Christians too. So we're going to have to define our terms, aren't we? So we see then that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now the Bible tells you not to be afraid, doesn't it? Doesn't the Bible say over and over again, fear not? God says, fear not, I'm with you. Here's something God says, be afraid of. Here's something the Holy Ghost says, be afraid of. Now it's not the same word that's used for, for fear not. It's not the same thing where the Bible talks about Satan bringing fear, but it is talking about giving respect because you know the consequence. So he says, give due respect to this because unbelief keeps you from entering into his rest. So make sure that there is no promise left that we're coming short of. Notice the word us is in italics in the King James. If you're reading along with me in the King James, it's in italics, which means it's not a part of the original. So it it originally reads, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left. That's a strange way to say it. A promise being left. He's not saying a promise being made. What's he talking about? He's talking about the promises are already out there. What happens to them depends on the individual's faith or their unbelief. So he's saying if you don't enter into something that the Bible says is yours, it's because you came short of it through unbelief. There's a God side and a man side. He's saying God side is the Holy Ghost giving you the promise. Man side is you have to do diligence to make sure that you're not coming short of anything that was promised. And that's what he, that refers back to take heed, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The Holy Ghost said it. All scripture is inspired by God. Paul is, you can see where Paul's going with this. Paul knows that there's a lot more that the Holy Ghost has said that they've, than they have accepted. But he's not talking about what God has said in the New Testament. He's going to go back and wrap them up in the Old Testament. So he said, let us therefore fear. Lest a promise being left of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Notice he said you and not us. He said, let us fear. That should, that should be an attitude of every Christian. Every Christian, no matter what they believe about the word, no matter how much they're maturing in the things of God, they should always be taking special care that they're not operating in unbelief in any area of their life. They need to always be taking care that they're operating in faith and believing everything the Bible says. And folks, it's a continual process. It'll be something that you and I will be changing our thoughts and therefore changing our belief system all the way until Jesus gets here. 
There'll be little adjustments. I'm not talking about major things. You believe that Jesus died on the cross. You believe that he paid the price for healing. You believe that provision belongs to us. Great. You believe in the virgin birth. You believe in those things. But there'll be things that you see in the word all throughout your Christian walk where you'll see you'll need to make a little adjustment. You'll see, well, I used to think this. I didn't realize that said that. I can see that now. I need to change this to thinking this. So there'll always be adjustments that we need to make. That's part of growth. So he's saying we should always have that. We all should have that same attitude. But notice he says, let us fear lest a promise being left of entering in some of you come short of it. Paul's saying, I'm not part of that group. I'm part of the group that makes sure that I'm always in faith, but I'm not in the group that's leaving things short. You are, not me. He identifies with them where he can, and he nails them to the wall where he needs to. Verse 2. By the way, the word uh, the word seem is the word appear. It's the same word used over in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, I think it is, where Paul said, and I went up to Jerusalem, and I, uh, I went before James and Cephas, who seemed to be pillars of the church. In other words, he's saying that's what that's the way it appeared to everybody else. He goes on to say, but they didn't they didn't matter any to me. They didn't have anything to do with what God had called me to do. So here he's talking about the appearance. He's saying, don't come short through the right attitude and through diligence. Make sure you don't come short of any promise that God has made so that it will appear in your life. In other words, become a reality in your life, whatever God has promised. Folks, God cares a lot about how you look because he's building the church. That's you. But he can't make you and me look the way we're supposed to, which is like Jesus, unless we'll accept the word of God by faith. That's why, in my opinion, the church looks like such a weak bunch. The Bible says we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. The church in America doesn't look like more than conquerors to me. Do they to you? Well, why don't we appear to be what the Bible says we have been made? Because people are, through unbelief, coming short of the promises. Do you see what he's saying? Verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. I'm going to read from you uh, from Exodus chapter 6. The first few verses, uh, well, I think it's verses 6 through 8. Because I want you to see what the original promise to Israel was. This is God telling Moses what to say to the people. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Wherefore, this is God talking to Moses, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with a great judgments, And I will take you... To me for a people, and I will be to you for a God, or be to you a God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. That sounds pretty good. God's not talking about what they're going to have to do. He's saying, here's what I'll do. I will deliver you from Egypt. I will deliver you from their bondages. I will bring you out. I will bring you into the the, the promised land. That's the promise. Now, let me ask you a question. If that's the promise of God, why didn't the elder generation, everybody from age 20 and up, 
not get in. Well, Paul's just identified. They couldn't enter in because of unbelief. So here's the point he's making. He's saying just because God has said something doesn't mean it's automatically going to come true for you. God's word never fails. And God's word is available for anybody that lays hold on it. But now the distinction he's going to be making is between those that went in and those that did not. And that's what he calls entering into his rest. The word rest, for the, for the most part, with one exception, I'll show you what that is in this chapter. The word rest means abiding place. There are two times in the Old Testament that the Bible talks about the rest of God. Number one, on the seventh day, God rested. It's where they get their principle for the Sabbath. Number two, when Moses, or when uh, Joshua rather, brought them into the promised land. Those are the two times when Moses calls, talks about the rest, entering into the rest. Those are the two things that the Jews, the religious Jews, are going to think about. They're going to think about the Sabbath. God made an end of all of his works. He ceased from all of his works. Secondly, Joshua brought them into the promised land. But the same promise was made to their fathers, the older generation, if you will, as it was made to the younger generation who went in 40 years later. Why the younger and not the older? Because of unbelief. The point that he's making is, just because the word of God is true and can never fail, it doesn't have to automatically be true for you unless you believe. That's hitting the Jews, the religious Jews, right between the eyes. Because their whole attitude is, we're better than everybody else in the world. God's made promises to us. We're the chosen people. It doesn't matter what we do. We're the chosen people. The high priests don't really care if they kill the prophets. They're still the chosen people of God. They're not trying to make sure they do everything right because we're the chosen people of God. We're the favored people in all the earth. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what anybody else does. God will never pick them. He's picked us. So when the gospel goes to the Gentiles and the Gentiles start doing the miracles that only God can do, man, that upsets their apple cart. That sends them for a loop. That's why either, number one, they've got to kill them, which is what they try to do to Jesus. They did the same thing, two things to Jesus that the religious Jews tried to do to the church, only in reverse order. Number one, when Jesus was doing miracles, the high priests and the, and the lesser priests went to him and said, come be part of us. And Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them because he didn't want them to own him. That didn't work, so then they, then they killed him. Tried to a long time before the, it was time and, and was successful. With the church, they did it exactly in reverse. They didn't try to co-opt the church first. They tried to kill it. That didn't work. So then what did they do? Then they tried to co-opt it. They tried to bring it in and make it part of theirs. Why? Because as far as they're concerned, we're still the, the, the chosen people of God. We don't like how it looks when other people are doing miracles that only God can do, and we're not doing those miracles. So we'll try to keep those in-house. How many times have we seen that in denominations? Well, we believe in the power of God. We believe in speaking in tongues. We believe in miracles and things like that. But let's make sure we have that after the service so that it doesn't disrupt things and people that don't understand won't be offended. Folks, the devil never has operated in any different way than he does now. He doesn't have anything new. So that's what he's getting to. He's saying, for unto us was the gospel preached. Unto us was the gospel preached. The good news that we've heard is about Jesus. 
And it's as absolute and as sure as the promise that God made to Israel to bring them out of Egypt, out of the bondage of the Egyptians, and to lead them into the promised land. But that wasn't an automatic, was it? Any more than the gospel is an automatic to you unless you mix faith with it. The difference between us, Christians, and those children of Israel who came out of Egypt is that we've mixed faith with what we've heard and it's changed our lives. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith and then, then them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. He's saying believing causes you to enter into that abiding place. Now, which rest does he mean? See, the Jews don't, won't, won't know yet. He's referred to the rest of the promised land. So is that the rest that he's talking about? Well, they don't know. It could be the rest of the Sabbath or it could be the rest of the promised land. We've got to see what else he says before we know for sure. For we which I believe do enter into rest as he said. I have sworn in my wrath if they shall enter into my rest. Now, Moses is, para- I'm sorry, Paul is paraphrasing what God said. Because what God said is, I have sworn in my wrath that they will not enter into my rest. Now he turns around to the positive. He said, just as surely as God swore that they wouldn't, they that refused to believe, wouldn't enter into his rest, the promise is just as sure, it's just as much a, a guarantee that those who did believe, uh, I started calling them Jalob, Joshua, Caleb, and everybody twenty year, uh, less than 20 years of age. They came out of Egypt. Those have just as much a guarantee that they will go in. Why? Because they mixed faith with what they heard. You remember when the ten spies came back and said, we can't do it? Caleb stood up in the midst and said, we are well able to do it. Why? They saw the same giants that the other ten saw. They saw the same walls around the cities. Why are they convinced they can do it? Because they're remembering. Wait a minute. Remember God took care of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. We've been watching that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire for the last couple of years. We got the stone tablets. Moses couldn't have done that on his own. We've seen the glory of God appear time and time and time again. We've seen the things that that in, uh, give us an incentive or give us proof that God really is with us. How in the world could the ten spies ignore everything that God has done for them and said, well, these people are strong, so we can't do it? There's nobody in the promised land that was stronger than Pharaoh. How could they ignore that? Folks, I want you to understand something. And I won't take time to show you, maybe at a later time. But what the children of Israel do once they get into the promised land, they're not much better than their forefathers. They get to certain times where they operate in just as much unbelief as their forefathers did. And they talk about things that they wouldn't have been old enough to see. My point is, their parents told them only the negative things and not the positive things about God and him leading them out of Egypt. So now Paul paraphrases and he says, God swore in his wrath if they shall enter into my rest. Well, how's that going to happen? By believing. Now that's where the verse should end because he's going to begin a different thought. Now he says, although from the works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, he's saying, The promised land was Israel's before the world was ever made. The promised land was Israel's before the world was ever made. Folks, your healing was purchased before Jesus ever came to the earth, much less uh, before he ever created the earth, much less came to the earth. 
Why? Because it was the plan of God from the beginning. And once God says something, that's the way it's going to be. His word cannot change. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word cannot fail. So what did Jesus do by coming to the earth? He fulfilled what God had already ordained. For that reason, every promise you've got has been ordained from the foundation of the world. You need to realize that. This is not, gee, I hope God comes through on this one. He determined what was yours before the world was ever made. So that's what he's saying. He's saying the promised land didn't become theirs just when they believed. It was ordained or from the foundations of the world. It was their believing that just enabled them to take hold of it. In other words, caused them to not come short of the promise. It was their believing that caused them not to come short of the promise, but to lay hold of it instead. You see the point he's making? You see the argument he's making? Now he's going to wrap it up. Stick with me. Verse 4, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. Now he's talking about the Sabbath rest. Now he's talking about the seventh day where God finished the, made an end of all his works. So he's talking about both rests now, isn't he? He knows the Jews recognize that's what rest means. It means that when God made an end of all of the creation, and it means when Israel came into the promised land. And Moses, uh, Paul is talking about both of them by the Holy Ghost. He's just mentioned and referred to Israel coming into the promised land, now he's talking about God making an end of all of his works. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all of his works. Please notice that he's making the point that rest, the rest that he's talking about, means stop trying to work for yourself. Coming to an end of all of your works. Folks, that's what Judaism is all about. It's you working your way toward God through sacrifices and rituals and so forth. He's saying if there's a rest, if there's a rest that belongs to us, then that's going to include putting an end to your works. Verse 5, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. In other words, now he's going to bring both Old Testament scriptures, both things that the Holy Ghost said in the Old Testament. The Holy Ghost said God made an end of all of his works and rested on the Sabbath day. The Holy Ghost said that the children of Israel came into the promised land and the ones that didn't come into the promised land didn't because they provoked me through unbelief. Both points. And Paul's going to tie them up with both points. Seeing therefore, verse 6, it remaineth that there must enter therein, that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered in not because of unbelief. Let me read that again. I, I messed that up. Seeing therefore, in other words, because of the things that we referred to, God made the promise of the promised land, but not everybody entered into the promised land. So he says, therefore, it's obvious that it remains that some must enter therein. Why? Because God said so. And they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So you got two groups. You got the groups that enter in because the promise of God is sure. And they accepted it through faith. But you got another group that died in the wilderness after wandering around for 40 years because they provoked God. See the two groups? He's talking about both. And he's challenging them, which group are you? Verse 7, again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, today. Here's the fourth time he refers to Psalm 95, verse 7. Why? All right, let me tell you why he puts them all together. Let me tell you why he keeps saying them again and again. And they probably hadn't figured it out yet. When did David say by the Holy Ghost, today, 
if you harden not your hearts, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts and receive his word. When did he say that? Was it before the children of Israel went into the promised land or was it after? David was a long time after Joshua. So when David is inspired by the Holy Ghost and Paul's already tied him up, you know, the Holy Ghost said this. When David says by the Holy Ghost today, this day, he's talking about some time period. He's not talking about a 24 hour period. He's talking about some time period or a dispensation that will be called this day at some point in the future where there is a rest to enter in. It can't be the Sabbath day rest. That was taken care of at creation. It can't be the promised land rest. That was taken care of when Joshua entered in. So what in the world is David talking about today? If you harden not his hearts, enter into his rest. Do you see the point he's making? He's saying everything that you've just agreed that David said by the Holy Ghost is talking about this day, this dispensation, this time where God is speaking to us through his son, Jesus, not the day when God spoke to Moses. Do you see it? He's got them. Because if they agree that the Holy Ghost said it, he certainly is not talking about the day before it was ever spoken. He can't be talking about the day of the, of the, of the law because they didn't get some new instruction from God in David's day. So then what's he talking about? If he's not talking about the day before the law, he's not talking about the time of the law, then what's he talking about? He's talking about the time period, the dispensation, or the house that Jesus built after the law, the day of the church. That's where we're at in verse 7. Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David. Now, who is the he? He's already established that Jesus is the builder of the house. Jesus is the creator of the time period. So he's saying, here's what Jesus said through David, talking about the day that you live in today. Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, today. After so long a time as it is said today. In other words, he's saying the time that today referred to was a long time after David first said today. The time that David was referring to is this day, this time. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. In other words, he's saying David was talking to you and you've already agreed that the Holy Ghost said it. David was talking to you about this day, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts like they did in the Old Testament. Do you see? Well, what does that mean to them? If they accept that and they have no argument, what are they going to say? No, David wasn't talking about today. Well, then when was he talking about? When does today refer to? Can't be his, it can't be the day that David spoke it. David didn't come giving the word of God. Nobody talks about David as being anything except a great king. He wasn't a prophet. He wasn't the lawgiver. He wasn't the one that delivered the word of the Lord to the, to the Jews. So then what's David talking about? He can't be talking about times past because he said today, this day. So if he's not talking about times past and he's not talking about his specific day, when is he talking about? The next time that God's going to speak in a different way, which is the church age where he speaks through Jesus. Do you see it? If you don't, I want to go over it again. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying Psalm 95 verse 7 is talking about today. The reason we know that is David can't be talking about his own day. 
Why? Because David didn't deliver the law. He didn't deliver the word. He didn't deliver anything that the that the the Jews, the religious Jews, would have to hearken unto and not harden their hearts about. They've already accepted the law. In David's day, they're already operating according to the law of Moses. So what would they hear his voice concerning? The only time that God would be speaking again or in a different way would be in a new time period. That came about with Jesus. That came about with the resurrection. So he said, so this is what David was talking about. He was talking about a long time after the day in the literal 24-hour period, the moment in time when he said these things by the Holy Ghost. And you know it. That's what he's telling the Jews. It's only logical. So he says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if, if you're reading with me in the King James, it says, for if Jesus, this is the Greek. Jesus is the Greek word or Greek name for the Old Testament name, Joshua. This doesn't mean Jesus Christ. This means Jesus Joshua. The one that led him into the promised land. Jesus' name is different from Joshua only because Joshua is an Old Testament Hebrew name that we hold on to. But Jesus is the Greek translation of the Old Testament name Joshua. So who's he talking about? Is he talking about Jesus Christ or is he talking about Joshua? Well, let's see what, he, what this person did and we can be able to tell. For if Jesus, Joshua, had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. He meaning David. He's saying Joshua brought the children of Israel into the promised land, right? So if that was the rest and the end of the rest that the Bible was talking about, why would David then have said many, many years, hundreds of years later, today if you hear his voice? There would be no rest to enter into. If the promised land is it, there's no other rest to enter into. Do you understand what he's saying? Therefore, now he wraps it up, there remains a rest. Therefore, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now, this word rest is, the, is the, a word that means keeping of the Sabbath. It's a different word that was used in verse 2. It means the keeping of the Sabbath. What does that mean? That means the rest, the keeping of the Sabbath, is the ceasing from your works. What's the law all about? It's about man's works. There therefore remains a rest to the people of God for... He, now there's a lot of he's in here, he's and his in here, and so we're going to have to divide them up. For he that entereth into, we just read that the only way you can enter in is by faith. The thing that keeps you from entering in is unbelief. So the he that enters in by faith or enters into his rest has to be a believer. So I'm going to insert believer here for the first he. For the believer that is entered into his Jesus Christ's rest, not the rest of the promised land, not the rest that Joshua brought him into, but his, the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, rest. He, the believer, also has ceased from his, the believer's own works, as God did from his works. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying if you're a real believer... There is no Christianity plus, plus Judaism. If you're a real believer, you've ceased from your own, own works. Why? Because the rest that we now have is not the promised land. The rest that we now have is the kingdom of God that Jesus entered, caused us to enter into. 
Therefore, you've got to cease from your own works if you're going to enter in. Now, uh, is this the best way to do it? Best time to do it? Best place to do it? Now, let's go to verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Now, notice Paul says he does not say he that believes has entered into it. He said in verse 2, we which have believed do enter into his rest. But it's a work. It's something, if there, is, if there is a part of your Christian life, it is a remaining at rest. In other words, there's always going to be a struggle between your works and the finished work of Jesus. Always. And you're going to have people that go to extremes on both ends. You certainly have people that go to extremes on the works part. You got to witness, you got to pray, you got to, there's all kinds of things that religion will push you into. But I see just as much error on the other side where people are going to this, everything is finished so we don't have any responsibility. Well, that doesn't make sense. Jesus said, occupy till he comes. So you do have responsibility. The thing that we're looking for Jesus to say is, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well believed. Not well accepted. But well done. So there is a work for us to do. So what is the balance? The balance is to realize that Jesus did everything that, that, he, that could be done to bring us to God. Our job is simply to rely on that and be like him. To appear by accepting through faith the promises of God that cannot lie and therefore be built up to be to look just like Jesus. Ideally, we should be able to say, he that has seen me has seen Jesus. Just like Jesus said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. Now, is anybody ever going to get there perfectly? No, probably not. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive for it. Do you understand what he's saying? So he says, let us therefore labor that we may enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief or disobedience, or I like another word that, uh, that this word means, unpersuadableness. I like that word, unpersuadableness. Let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of Israel, the example meaning Israel's example in the 40 years in the wilderness, because they were unpersuadable. They refused to be persuaded. Now hold your finger here. We'll come right back here and, and finish up. But hold your finger here and let me remind you of uh, something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there must be a rest that Jesus can give us, right? Well, what was that rest? That rest was accomplished through the cross. That's when Jesus put an end to his works and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Verse 29, he said, take my yoke upon you. What's our responsibility then if Jesus has done it? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Our job is to learn. Biggest job you'll ever have in the Christian life is to learn of him. That's what Paul said he was after. He said, I count everything secondary except knowing him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. He said, that's, how, that's the only thing I want. He, why? Because he understands what the rest of God is. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Folks, it's learning of him 
It's renewing your mind to the word. It's growing in the knowledge of God that causes you to find or enter into that rest that belongs to you through the finished work of Jesus. Can you see it? Okay, let me finish up with one more verse in Hebrews chapter 4 and then we'll close. Because of these things, there is not one religious Jew that can stand up with a scriptural foundation, any Old Testament scriptural foundation, nothing, and stand up and say, here's why we need to keep following the law of Moses. Not one. Because if somebody did stand up and say that, then everybody who's read this letter would say, but David was talking about entering into a rest that's different from the Sabbath or the promised land. We're in the promised land now, so he's talking about something else. What is that? Paul says it's this day, this dispensation, this time when God is speaking to us through his son, Jesus Christ. How can you discount that? How can any religious person discount that? They can't. They're left with the same thing that religious people are left with today, and that is they're going to have to take things out of the Bible to believe what they really want to believe. Now, don't don't make any mistake about it. I'm sure there are a lot of religious Jews that were willing to do that. They'll ignore certain scriptures so that they can have it their way. But Paul has tied them up. Any intelligent and reasonable person, he's tied them up in knots, saying David had to have been talking about this day when he said today if you'll hear his voice. Because there was no hearing his voice back then. God wasn't speaking through anybody other than Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets. That's all there was. That was it. So he says, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. We know, we don't know if they did, we know that that laboring to enter into his rest is learning of Jesus, growing in the knowledge of him. What does Paul tell them? He says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What word is he talking about? He's saying the word I'm delivering to you by the Holy Ghost. I am explaining to you by the Holy Ghost and showing you that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was speaking of this day. I'm explaining to you by the Holy Ghost. The word of God has come to you through my letters, not just the ones. He knows that the Jews, the religious Jews are well aware of his letters that he's written to other churches. There are copies that have gone all over the world. He knows they know them, and he knows those are the reason that many of those attacks are being made against these churches because of the things that he writes. Because everything he writes is saying, you don't have to keep the law of Moses. Jesus is the finished work of God. And that's what they're fighting against. Now they have no foundation. They have no standing whatsoever to say the law of Moses should still be kept. None whatsoever. So he says, we need to labor and enter into the rest that Jesus has brought us through his finished work on the cross because the word of God is quick and powerful, full of life and power, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Why does he say sharper than any two-edged sword? We think of it in a natural context. The ones he's writing to are thinking of it in a religious, a Jewish and religious context. He's saying the word that's now spoken is sharper It's full of life. It's full of power. It's not dead like the law. It's not dead like the prophets. It's full of life and power. It's the only thing that can show you the real heart of God. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing asunder, dividing into two pieces. 
even piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Couldn't get that from the Old Testament. Couldn't get that from the law of Moses. Nobody even claimed to get there. In fact, God complained over and over again through the prophets, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. He's saying there's only one thing you've got now that comes from God and that is the word that's spoken through the ministry gifts of the church. That's all there is. You hold on to anything of the Old Testament, you're discounting the very word, the very things that God by the Holy Ghost said in that law. He said, listen to his voice today. This day, church age, this dispensation. For you to stay in times past, for you to hold on to things past, you're doing exactly what your forefathers did and your carcasses are going to die in the wilderness just like theirs did. Your choice. So what have we seen? We've seen Jesus is greater than the angels. We've seen Jesus is greater than Moses. And we see that Jesus is greater than Joshua because Jesus' rest, the rest that Jesus Christ through his finished work on the cross brings us into is greater than any promised land that Joshua entered into. So Jesus is greater. He's better than all. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you for the privilege that we have to see so much more clearly than they. Because we have all the things, the letters that the Holy Ghost inspired to be written to the church so that we know who we are in Christ. Father, help us not make the same mistakes that they did. Help us to not be unpersuadable in any area, in any aspect of the Word of God. But instead, Father, help us to see that we have as great or greater responsibility than they to listen to your voice today. That means listen to your word, the letters that were written to us, given to us by the Holy Ghost, and also listen to that which the Holy Spirit speaks to our heart. Let us not be like those who left a promise of God and came short of it through unbelief. But instead, Father, let us be those who through learning of Jesus growing in the knowledge of God, truly enter into his rest. In the precious and holy name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. And we'll see you Sunday.